If you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to turn to the book of Exodus. We're continuing on in our reading of God's Word, making our way through the book of Exodus on these Sunday evenings. We've seen the suffering of Israel in Egypt. We've seen the birth of the Deliverer whom God has chosen, and then Moses encountering the Lord at the burning bush, God revealing himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now we're in chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, there's one there in the pew rack in front of you. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, Genesis, then Exodus, Exodus chapter 4, and I'll be reading the whole chapter that reminds us of the Lord giving to Moses these signs, attesting to God being with him, and then Moses' return to Egypt as God prepares the way to deliver the people of Israel out of their bondage. Let's hear then God's word. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. 
And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses took I told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak, and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of all the people. And the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you again that all through the Bible we have reminders of your deliverance that you have brought for your chosen people. We thank you that even as you prepared the way for Moses and gave him powerful signs to do before Pharaoh, who would even call himself God, that as you gave him signs to do and spoke through Aaron and through Moses and all of these signs, so you have in these last days spoken to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you prepared the way for him as well, that all of the prophecies of the Old Testament point to the Lord Jesus, his life, his work his death, his resurrection, his ascension to your right hand. We thank you that tonight we can come before your throne of grace and ask you to be at work. For we hear these words, but we confess that without the working of your Holy Spirit, we will not understand, we will not have our ears unstopped, we will not have our hearts touched and changed and softened. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Illumine this word for us, that even as your word is preached, that your Holy Spirit might powerfully work so that each one of us who came in here tonight would go out, not the same people, but changed people, because we have encountered the living Christ who comes to us by his word. We ask now that you would do this by your grace so that we might serve you and love you, so that we might know you better. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. If you'll turn now to the New Testament, the text for tonight, it's Luke 18. Uh, It's got 17 in your bulletin, but it's in fact Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. This is one of Jesus' parables that Luke records for us. It's only recorded here in the Gospel of Luke. And it comes right after another parable, the parable of the persistent widow, speaking particularly of the matter of prayer, but I think helping us to 
understand and helping us to answer this question, who are you trusting in? So let's hear now God's Word. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And as we just confess, indeed the grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. When I was a young man, I had the opportunity to learn to fly airplanes And one of the stipulations of our instruction and what we were being trained to do is that we could only fly in good weather. We could only fly when the sun was shining. We couldn't fly when the winds were high, when it was raining, when the clouds were low. But they did want us to know what to do in case we ever found ourselves in a situation where we couldn't see the ground. Maybe all we could see was the sky above and the clouds Beneath, or we were in the clouds and we weren't sure what to do. And so, in order to instruct us in that, they took us up in the airplane going with an instructor and they put a hood on us. And so, all you could see in front of you, we couldn't see anything to the sides, you couldn't really see anything out the windshield, you could just see the instruments that were there in front of you, the airspeed indicator, could see what altitude you were at, you could see that artificial horizon that showed you where was the sky, where was the ground relative to where you were flying. And then they would upset the airplane in a certain way, and then you'd have to look at your instruments and get it back straight and level again. And it was to remind us that we were to put our trust in what those instruments were telling us, not what our bodies were feeling. It's amazing. You can get in a cloud where you can't see anything and you think that you're flying straight and level, but in fact you're banking over and going towards the ground. You can't trust what your body is telling you. You need to learn to trust the instruments. And you needed to learn to trust also that instructor who was with you, knowing that if he got the airplane into a spin and you're going around, even if you don't really know what to do, he's sitting there beside you and he can take control and everything will be all right. And it was always a question of what are you trusting in? And I think that's what we see in this parable. It's a parable of trust and a parable of trust in a matter that's so much more important than flying an airplane, so much more important than just regular life, but it's talking about eternal salvation. And so better maybe to ask that question, who are you trusting in? Are you trusting in yourself? 
Are you trusting in someone else? Or are you trusting in that God who spoke to Moses, who said, I am that I am. I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one who would send the Lord Jesus. And it's good for us to consider this parable because I think it's really for all of us who come here tonight. All of us who come maybe in need of that salvation that Jesus brings. Not understanding what has God done for me. Needing to understand what does the Bible say about my eternal state, where I stand before God. For the unbeliever who trusts in himself, it speaks of salvation. But for you too, as a Christian, maybe who has read the Bible over years and years, there is important instruction here, particularly as we come to that matter of prayer. Because as we come before God and as we pray before his throne of grace, again, we need to ask that question, who are you trusting in? Who are you trusting in to answer your prayers? So I want to look at this parable just in three points. First of all, who are people trusting in as we look at that question in general? Secondly, who is the Pharisee trusting in? And then thirdly, who is the publican or the tax collector? Who is the publican trusting in? Who are people trusting in? As I speak with people in Haiti, I recognize that for many Haitians in these dark days of insecurity and gang violence, this question of who are you trusting in is a daily question. They need to trust in God just to go out of their house, to go get food at the corner, not knowing is it safe to do that. They need to trust God as they send their kids to school, saying, is my child going to get to school and back safely? Is someone going to be kidnapped? It is a daily matter of trust. And even when that police officer is standing at the corner, it may appear safe, but they're not sure. Is that a corrupt police officer? Is he with the gangs or is he with me? Is he going to protect me? And so these are real matters of trust. As you say, what are people trusting in in Haiti? They're trusting in all kinds of things, but they know that they cannot trust the authorities that are there. But as we come to a spiritual answer to that question in these spiritual matters, the answers are even more important. What are you trusting in? Because we all trust in someone. We all trust in something. And Jesus tells this parable to help us answer the question. In verse 9, he says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Jesus has an audience in view, doesn't he? He has an audience in view. And he's still on the subject of prayer in particular, understanding that for the Jews, as for Christians, prayer is important. It's something that God had commanded his people to do. And so as they came to the matter of prayer, they had to know for themselves, who am I praying to? Who is God? Who am I? Where do I stand before God? And who do I trust in to answer my prayers? Who ultimately do I trust in to save me from my sins? 
just before. There's the parable of the persistent widow because Jesus wanted to remind people that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. It's easy when we pray for something and have to pray for it again and again, day after day, month after month, maybe year after year, to lose heart. And Jesus tells this parable of a woman, a widow, who comes to a judge, and the judge just ignores her. He doesn't want to deal with her, but finally he's just tired of hearing her voice. He gives her justice, he says, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And Jesus reminds us here is that God is not like this. He is not like this unrighteous judge, but God will indeed give justice to his elect. And then we come to verse 9. And that question, who are people trusting? It's kind of like the question that Jesus gives to Peter. You remember in Matthew chapter 16 where he speaks to his disciples. And he says, who do people say that I am? What are the crowds saying? What are the people saying? What do the polls say to answer this question? Who am I? Who are you trusting in? Well, Jesus knew that there were some, even there in his audience, who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. They trusted in themselves. Who is righteous? Who is just before God. In the book of Luke, if you read through it, particularly in the early chapters, you hear this refrain again and again that the righteous people are people like Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, Elizabeth, his mother, people like Simeon, who is waiting for the consolation of Israel. These were righteous people because they were waiting for the true Messiah to come. They trusted in God to keep his promises and to send his Messiah. They did not trust in themselves, but they trusted in God. God calls people to have a true righteousness. And so Jesus is saying by implication here that it's not good to trust in yourself. If you really want to be saved, if you really want God to hear and answer your prayers, you cannot trust in yourself. But even more than that, Jesus says, these same people who trust in themselves and in their own righteousness, their own standing before God, they treat others with contempt. They are not righteous, but they treat others with contempt. Like in Luke chapter 23, the way that Jesus is treated by those soldiers as he's led off to be crucified, mocked, treated with contempt. Jesus is treated that way. Maybe not here. The Pharisees maybe aren't quite ready to really heap on Jesus the contempt that they feel in their hearts, but later on they're going to do that. And indeed, later on in Acts chapter 4, we're going to hear that Jesus is that stone that was rejected, the cornerstone that God had set in place. It's that same word. We might say Jesus is the stone who was contempted. He was treated with contempt so that we might not be. But who are people trusting in? They're saying, by looking at others in this way, treating them with contempt, they're saying that I'm trusting in myself. I'm better than those people. We can go to the end of the parable also in verse 14, 
where Jesus kind of brings it all together. And he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, someone who exalts themselves is saying, I trust in myself. I trust in my own reputation. I trust in my education. I trust in my wealth. I am trusting in myself. I exalt myself, but Jesus says they'll be humbled, but rather be humble. Be humble. Recognize that your righteousness is nothing. It's just filthy rags. And then, by God's grace, you will be saved, even as Jesus humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. Who are people trusting in? Well, Jesus is focusing for us, isn't he, here, on the attitudes of the heart. Particularly, where he speaks of them treating others with contempt. You can't always see that. Sure, you can see it sometimes, hear it in the words, the way even people speak of others, but often it's just in the heart. And Jesus is saying we have to have the right attitude of the heart if we're going to come before God, stand before him, and bring our requests to him. And so the focus for Jesus is our heart. He's speaking this parable to us to convict us, to call us to humility and to see our true position. And then he tells the story of two men. Two men who would have been familiar to the people there, not as individuals, but as a group, the Pharisees and the publicans, the tax collector. And so let me ask secondly then, who is the Pharisee trusting in? Now for the people who heard this parable, as they hear Jesus say, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, already they would have made judgments in their mind. Because for the people of Jesus' day, for most of them, the Pharisees were a respect group of people. They were the religious leaders. They were the ones who had separated themselves, were trying to follow God's law. They were respected. They kept the law. And it was the tax collectors and sinners who were hated by people, not just disliked, but really hated by people as traitors to the nation. And so As Jesus speaks this parable, people would have been surprised because they would have heard of the Pharisee and heard him going up to the temple. He stands by himself. He prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And they would have said, surely God is going to hear the prayer of this man, this Pharisee. But how does the Pharisee pray? Look at it there in Verse 11, the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Certainly it's good, isn't it, that he goes to the temple to pray. That's the place that God had set apart, the place God had assigned for people to go in prayer. And so he's going close to God, going into the temple. But then we hear that he stands by himself. 
It's as if he's saying, I am morally apart from these other people, from the masses of people in Israel. I stand apart. I'm somehow better than those people. He doesn't stand with them as the people of God, but he stands apart. And indeed, Pharisee, the name Pharisee means the separated ones. He's doing as his name implied. And so standing, he prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Why does he give thanks to God? He gives thanks to God because he's not like all these other people, and he lists all these categories of lawbreakers, extortioners, people who take money from others they don't deserve, people who are unjust in their judgments, adulterers, people who are unfaithful, even like this tax collector. And you can see the picture, can't you, of The Pharisee standing there in the temple, maybe getting as near as he can to the temple precincts. Meanwhile, the Pharisee is standing far back, but it's as if he's pointing a finger at that man, not like that tax collector. The Pharisees were strict followers of the law, and yet, even in these words... He's showing, again, that he's trusting in himself, his own deeds, his own law-keeping. But Jesus, in other places, will call him a hypocrite. We, when we moved into our home here just a few months ago, we didn't have a refrigerator, so we bought a fridge, and we went, and it turned out it was better to buy something new, and so... As these new fridges have, they have all these different features. And I'm reading through the manual, and I read in there that this refrigerator that I have has a Sabbath mode in it. And the Sabbath mode, of course, is for observant Jews. And if you set that to on, basically it will use less power on the Sabbath. And the ice maker won't produce ice on the Sabbath, and we kind of laugh, don't we? We sort of think that seems kind of ridiculous, but I think it gets to the point, doesn't it, of what the law-keeping of the Pharisees was really like. They do all these little things, put everything in its box to try to obey, to try to obey God's standard, and yet they neglect, Jesus says, the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice. They're hypocrites, and they are deceiving themselves if they think that this somehow makes them better, because again, the Pharisee, all he's doing is saying, I'm trusting in myself. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's saying, I do even more than the law demands. The Old Testament in Leviticus only prescribed one day out of the year for a fast. It only prescribed the tithe for the crops, the harvest that they brought in, and yet they're giving of every little thing that they get. He's trying to do more, proclaiming his own righteousness, and therefore saying that he trusts in himself. He's a whitewashed tomb, Jesus is saying. On the outside, everything looks good. It does look like he's in a higher position. Certainly, religiously, he's in a higher position than the tax collector. Morally, his life, on the outside at least, looks better. In his observance to the law, he seems like a better servant of God. And yet Jesus said, you're like a whitewashed tomb. It's all beauty on the outside, but what's inside? 
Inside are dead men's bones and everything unclean. Again, it reminds me of Haiti. And if you go there, kind of like some parts of Louisiana, because the water table is so high, they build above-ground crypts to bury people in. And they will construct them out of rebar and cement, sometimes even while they're doing the funeral service, they're putting the finishing touches on that, and then they paint them afterwards. They paint them just like you do houses. And one might say they're beautiful. If you went to Haiti and you didn't know what these places were, you might wonder, what are all these beautiful little painted houses? But they're crypts. They're places where people are buried inside our corpses, inside our rotting bones. And everything unclean, that's what Jesus says the Pharisees are like. And if you go back and read this prayer of the Pharisee, as Matthew Henry comments, he says in it, there is not one word of prayer. Did you notice that? He's not asking God for anything. He's not proclaiming God's excellencies. He's basically talking about himself. He is trusting in himself for his salvation. We might compare the Pharisee, and to use another, another illustration, compare him to the thief on the cross. In Matthew chapter 27, this text that Pastor Joel preached not too long ago, we hear of the Pharisees rebuking Jesus, mocking him, pouring contempt on him, saying, if he really is the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross. And even the robbers, verse 44 who were crucified with him, also reviled him in the same way. These very men who were judged by the Roman authorities and about to die, even they trusted in themselves and would not trust in the Savior. The answer to that question often of who you are trusting in is shown when you pray. For the Pharisee, it wasn't a prayer. It was more a litany of all of his so-called accomplishments. But how do you pray? You see, just praying, just going to the place of prayer is obviously not enough. You need to do it with the right heart, with the right attitude that recognizes your humility, your place, your standing before God. And it's even easy for us, isn't it, as Christians, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to get into that mode of a kind of works righteousness. We think, well, God's going to answer my prayer if I've read the Bible today, if I've been to church every week this month. And so the publican and his response, his example here that Jesus puts before us, reminds us of the truth and of the true answer to that question, who are you trusting in? Because even as that Pharisee speaks to God and gives thanks that he's not like that tax collector, the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Who is the publican trusting in What about this other man? You've probably seen it around, although it's 
maybe not very obvious, but even in the towns of Gainesville, there are signs around that say tax collector, and sometimes they'll say tax collector, and there's an arrow this way, it points to a building, and you go to that building, it'll say tax collector, and maybe the name of the person who's in that office. And I would venture to say that probably not many of us love to pay taxes. We don't love to give part of our income to the government, and yet we recognize that there is some good that comes of it. We have roads that we can drive on. We have police and fire who are going to help us, who are going to come and put the fire out if our house is burning down. There's many benefits from those taxes, even if there is corruption. Well, it wasn't like that in Jesus' day. I don't think any of us would say, that guy, that tax collector in Gainesville, I really hate him. He's just such a lousy person. But for tax collectors in Jesus' day, they were a hated category of people. In the same class, as the Pharisee says, as extortioners, unjust adulterers, and tax collectors. In fact, in the Gospels, if you read carefully, you'll see again and again the accusation of the Pharisees to Jesus as they say, he eats with who? He eats with tax collectors and sinners. They're lumped together as one of a whole, or even in Matthew chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus, he eats with tax collectors and prostitutes. They're saying that those people, tax collectors and prostitutes, they're cut from the same cloth. They are sinners, and even more than that, traitors. But this man, who everyone despised, what does he do? He's standing far off. He would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he went to pray, didn't he? He went to the temple. He went to the place that he knew God had put his name, where God had said, go here. Here is where you are to pray. He goes into the temple to pray. And yet he stands afar off. Probably Jesus is thinking of that court of the Gentiles. There were all of these different places where people could go. The court of the Gentiles in the temple area. That's as close as a Gentile could get. And then you had the court of women. And then you had the steps leading up to the temple. And of course, going inside, only the priests could go in there and the high priest into the Holy of Holies one time a year. But he stands maybe as far off as he can get because he recognizes his position before God. He is not, he is not trusting in himself. His eyes are to the ground instead of heaven in humility. Seeing himself as a sinner. He beats his breast. Here again, an expression of contempt on himself. Echoing those words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He understands that before God, he is a wretched sinner. And so we see this little short prayer, maybe one of the most important prayers of the Bible. If you want to know, how can I be exalted before God? How can I have standing before God? How can I express that I'm not trusting in myself, 
but rather in the God who saves. It's in this prayer. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all that we have recorded. And Jesus is saying to us that this is the prayer that God hears because God sees the heart that's behind that prayer. It's not a proud heart. It's not a proud a heart that looks inwardly for something good, but recognizes what? That he's a sinner. I am a sinner under the condemnation of God. I don't deserve to come into the temple. I certainly don't deserve to come into the Holy of Holies, into the very presence of God. God, be merciful to me. And so he looks to God and he throws himself on God's mercy. Not what I can do, he says, but God, what you might do in your mercy. Mercy that is given to sinners in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is a man who trusts not in himself, but in God's mercy. Just like that other thief that hung on the cross. You remember, there were two of them, weren't there? And at first, both of them were mocking Jesus, reviling him, saying, if you really are the Savior, save yourself. Save us too while you're at it. They're mocking Jesus. But Luke records in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 39, he says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same condemnation, the same sentence of condemnation? He saw his place. He recognized here, at least at the end of his life, that he was a sinner. And we indeed justly, he says, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he throws himself on the mercy of Jesus, the only one who can save him from his sins. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's his prayer. Again, just a short little phrase, right? A short little prayer. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus responds. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise this very day. You will be with me. Your body will die, but your spirit will live forevermore in the glorious heaven with his Savior. I tell you, verse 14, this man, this publican now, Jesus speaking of the tax collector, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Who is just before God? Who is righteous before God? It's this tax collector. The one who everybody wants to hate. The one who nobody recognizes as a good man, even himself. He recognizes, I'm not a good man. And yet Jesus says, this is the one who I will save. This needs to be you and I. We need to understand this again. That this is where all prayers start. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because when we go to pray, what do we say? We're saying that we are depending on God for everything. 
And that's what we need to do. We're recognizing that I can't change this situation. I can't change the heart of this loved one who refuses to bow the knee to Jesus. I can't change their heart, but God can. I can't heal this person I love suffering from some dreaded disease, but God can. Lord, have mercy. And so we come, like this tax collector, into God's presence, depending on him, saying, God, I trust in you. And even more than that, right, we can come in a better way, we might say, even than this tax collector, and say, we come into the God's presence with our eyes up, with our eyes to heaven, where Jesus is now seated at his right hand, interceding for us. We have something even better. And the Old Testament saints, we have our Savior who is in heaven, always interceding for us, bringing our prayers with his righteousness before God the Father. And that is how we are to pray. And so Jesus' parable is a reminder that our righteousness, he said, has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. There was no righteousness here for this Pharisee, but the tax collector, because he leaned on the mercy of God, he found righteousness in Jesus. We come with our eyes up. We come embraced by the Lord Jesus, washed by him. And so let me finish by just reminding you of these words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where in verse 9 he begins, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You see, in that list are things that could certainly have been said of that tax collector. Thieves, greedy, swindlers. That's who you were. But God says, no, now, because the Lord Jesus has died and been raised, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so as you trust in him, you can come into his presence, you can bring your prayers before him, knowing that he hears, that he loves to hear the prayers of his people. And at that last day, that even as you have humbled yourself, God will exalt you even to heaven and his presence forever. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we give you thanks for your love toward us. Love that comes to sinners. Sinners like this tax collector. Sinners like all those who have gone before us, born in Adam. Oh Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and that he reminds us again that we are not to trust in ourselves but in you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would take these words, that you might 
apply them powerfully to our hearts and that we might reflect on them even through this week, that we might be that healing balm of the message of salvation even to those that we encounter through this coming week. And so we pray that you would do that work even by your Holy Spirit now. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.